I'm Addison Brown, and this is the Emerging World Project podcast. What are you doing here? Roadblocks is a game. Is it? Why do all the adults say roadblocks? It's called Roblox. Row. Oh. <laughs> Roblox Row? Yes. R O B L O X. Roblox. Okay. Got it. Oh. Oh. It sounds intriguing. Is it fun? It's very fun indeed. It's very fun indeed. Well, let's have some more fun. You want to have some fun? Yes, I do. Awesome. Hey there, thank you for stopping by. (laughs) In case you were wondering what that was all about, that was Marley schooling me on video games. (laughs) Oh my God, he cracks me up. Um, We will get back to that. Um, So today on our show, we are talking to Jenny and Erin. Jenny is a biologist whose lifelong passion for wildlife conservation has led her to work in some rather magical locations in the world. She's worked with endangered and rescued wildlife like ocelots in Belize and baboons in Namibia. Jenny turned this work into a company. Her company leads volunteer conservation adventures across the globe. Aaron, well, Aaron speaks for the birds. He is a career educator for our youth in the wildlife conservation arena. Alongside those endeavors, he too assists in those curated Jenny of the Jungle adventures. Now he's coordinating and paying particular attention to making sure any post-pandemic trips are a safe and enriching experience for us all. So before we jump in with Jenny and Aaron, Marley and I are going to share some travel tips, some stories, and a few very important things that you will want to consider before visiting any sanctuary or rescue center. So if I were going to go to a sanctuary, any kind of sanctuary, let's just say I was traveling through Thailand and I thought it might be a really cool idea to go and ride an elephant because they've been trying to get me to go and ride elephants. Um, we know that that is not a good idea in any way, shape, or form. It's just never a good idea. But not everybody knows that, and that's okay. That's why we're here and we're talking. And we're going to share some of the things that people should look for. So Marley, let me know what you know. Okay, here are a few things to look for. Before visiting any sanctuary, asking a few simple questions can usually help you determine whether a facility is helping or exploiting animals. So crimped pens with concrete floors and chain link fences are definitely red flags. Yes, those sound like waving red flags, concrete floors and chain link fences. Not a good idea. I can't imagine an animal being happy there. Okay. 
Number two, habitats should offer enrichments such as expansive structures for chimpanzees to climb, ponds or pools for bear to bathe in, and a large field for grazing. The aim of enrichment is to provide comfort for the animals. It is important to recognize that all living beings deserve a peaceful space and a truce to worry puts the need and desires of the animals first and foremost. That's good information. Thank you, Marley. So you should also know that countless animals are discarded by private owners, circuses, roadside zoos, laboratories, and other exploitive industries. They simply cannot provide adequate care. So for people who care about animals and want to support rescue efforts, sanctuaries can be an appealing and compassionate alternative to these cruel captive facilities. Um, however, the animal industry, animal entertainment industry, is catching on. And many cruel roadside zoos and breeding facilities are now marketing their animal prisons as sanctuaries or rescues and claiming to support species conservation in order to attract customers. But true sanctuaries, they provide animals with a permanent home until the day they die. They don't trade, borrow, or loan animals. And the animals who call a sanctuary home likely had a very rough start. And the staff there will be eager to tell you their individual stories so that you can learn more about the various industries that are harmful to animals. Cool, eco-friendly traveling tips for our audience. Uh, you want to be light on what you pack. Uh, having a lot of things is not good. And you should have things on your back, like suitcases. I don't use barely I use them uh, it's not good if, like let's say you're in a rush and you need to get somewhere in a certain amount of time like your flight <laughs> can I tell you a funny story yes. one time I met up with your mother in um, Mumbai India and we hadn't spoken on the phone. We were just communicating via email. I think she was somewhere in the world and I was somewhere else, way somewhere else in the world. So we said, okay, I'll meet you in Mumbai. And I had found at the airport, but outside of the airport, there was some mm, food stand, right? So I said, I'll meet you there. There were so many people. I was freaked out that I was never going to find your mother because I didn't even, I couldn't even find that stand. <laughs> the food stand that I asked her to meet me at, I couldn't even find it. So it was pretty, it was pretty, pretty, pretty scary for a minute. And then I was wandering around and I turned around and there she was. And she had on the coolest backpack and she just looked so light and easy. And there I was with my roller. I know, she travels very light. She's, right? So you must have gotten that from her. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, okay, so can you um, tell me a little bit about the ocelot? What is an ocelot exactly? And how can we um, 
bring awareness to its cause because it is endangered um, and what people could look for and what they might be able to do. An ocelot is a medium-sized spotted wildcat. Fewer than 60 ocelots remain in the U.S. and Texas near the Mexican border. The biggest threat to the ocelot survival is the loss of habitat caused by the expansion of agricultural land, urbanization, and road. To ensure their future, we must enlarge and improve the amount of habitat with suitable vegetation available to these cats. You can help us raise awareness for ocelots in Texas by supporting and advocating for the Endangered Species Act. Okay, if you could go on one of those trips, which one would you go on? A Chiang Mai. You'd go to Thailand? Yes. I've always That's... wanted to go. Really? Yes. What is it about Thailand that gets you uh, going? Food. Oh, always food. Yes. <laughs> like Pad Thai? <gasps> yes. Is that your favorite? Or one of your favorites? Do you remember the... Mm, uh, Tom Kai, something I made for you years and years ago. <laughs> if it's the coconut soup. It was the, the. Oh, you don't remember? Sorry, you were I young. I do not remember. I do not remember. I do not remember. That's wow, okay. A lot of people online now. I theme park. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, so you would go to Thailand. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask Jenny if um, she could step up her efforts to allow younger people, I believe it's younger than 17, to be able to participate in these adventures. And if we can get her to step it up, maybe this time next year, you'll be in Thailand. You and I will be in Thailand. What do you think about that? Great. Fantastic, then. It's time to talk to our guest, Jenny and Erin, from Jenny of the Jungle. Okay. One of the first questions that I'm uh, prone to ask in the beginning of these conversations with people is that um, I'm really curious to know when you noticed your relationship to the natural world. Mm. Well, I can answer that for me. Um, <laughs> my relationship to the natural world was introduced to me through PBS nature shows as a really young child. Um, I kind of had a tough childhood and I didn't have much as a child, but we did have PBS and those nature shows really provided me a solace when I was young and taught me that I wanted to work with animals. Uh, my dad used to take us on lots of camping trips, and I, from a very young age, I definitely had this curiosity about nature, uh, specifically birds. And I remember one time seeing this red-shouldered hawk uh, come really close to us on a camping trip in the Everglades, and I was hooked. And I was just so fascinated by birds of prey, uh, and that kind of uh, escalated and expanded, and I started to fall in love with all birds and birds are kind of a gateway uh, to the rest of the natural world. And for me, that's how it all happened. 
Could you just share with me a little bit about what your company does? And um, I would love to hear about the inception of it as well. Essentially, what we do is we take uh, volunteer trips around the world uh, for wildlife mm-hmm. conservation specifically. Uh, each trip kind of varies. Uh, the theme is pretty much just rescuing animals in whatever capacity is needed, depending on what country and what project. Uh, so most people that come on the projects are going to be first-time travelers or uh, or and or um, people that have not volunteered or worked with wildlife. So between Jenny and myself, we've got, uh, I mean, probably 20 years at least of experience with working with animals as well as traveling. So uh, we basically just make sure that everyone's taken care of and Jenny creates these amazing itineraries and uh, then we pick everybody up at the airport, take them to a project, volunteer alongside them, and then usually usually spend some time exploring the country, especially, uh, you know, bird watching or checking out the local wildlife as well. And uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Jenny can tell you more about the journey that got us there. I worked really hard uh, to be the first person in my family to go to college, and that's kind of where I fell in love with the tropics. I studied rainforest ecology and conservation as kind of my uh, major. And while I was in college, I applied for a grant to take a month-long tropical ecology class in Costa Rica, and I was awarded it. And as soon as I stepped foot in the jungle, I knew that's kind of, that was my place. That was my home. So everything after college was working to, how can I get there? How can I work in the jungle? How can I do what I love? And the only way at that point was just volunteering. So I would apply to volunteer research projects or other volunteer projects and be awarded them and then go abroad. So my first one actually after college was to Belize to study ocelots in the jungle. And for those of you who don't know, anyone, ocelots are just like tiny jaguars. Did she say an ocelot is like a tiny jaguar? Ah, be still, my beating heart. Uh, It was really fun. It was hard. It was my first time abroad for multiple months. And yeah, it's a mental game, (laughs) but it was awesome. And uh, because of that project, that's kind of what sparked my lifestyle of traveling, doing volunteer work, where I'd leave the country for a few months at a time and then come back home and have to start over, find a new job, pay off the debt that I'd accumulated from (laughs) the travel and save up for the next trip. So I did that for a while. And when I hit my 30s, I realized that I couldn't really live like that anymore without a steady source of income. Uh, starting over is hard <laughs> and I needed to figure out a way to make a living while still doing what I loved and that's where Jenny of the Jungle was born. It allowed me to continue doing this work while also introducing others to the same opportunities working with animals that I've had. Of course I you know stalk you on Instagram. I noticed uh, your trip to Thailand and um, the elephants there, and in specifically the Karen tribe. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. This this particular project down in, uh, uh, I guess, what is it, east? Yeah, east in Thailand, east <laughs> to Thailand from here. 
they uh, they work with the locals, uh, including the Karen tribe, uh, to uh, kind of change a bit of uh, a bit of the culture surrounding the way animals are treated. Uh, a, a lot of the a lot of the locals in the area they kind of depend on uh, you know elephants as their livelihood. Uh, whether it's logging or the entertainment industry, uh, elephants are not really treated well in that sort of environment. Uh, so what this project does is they, uh, I mean, there's many ways that they go about it. Sometimes they will outright pay the uh, the owner of the elephant uh, either to take it off their hands or, they, or to start a new sort of uh, money-making opportunity that doesn't involve exploiting the elephant. Uh, so they essentially free these elephants and let them roam around uh, throughout the jungle uh, instead of working. And the elephants can just be themselves. They can, uh, you know, they can just, you know, basically stuff their faces all day. And us as volunteers, uh, we essentially just go to these places. We live with the Karen tribe uh, in their, uh, you know, they have these beautiful bamboo huts in the, uh, up in the hills of Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. And um, we just kind of find the elephants out into the out in the jungle. It's sometimes we can hike for hours before we come across them. And uh, it shows the it shows the locals that um, you know people are willing to pay and they're willing to travel to see these elephants. And by keeping them nice and healthy, both psychologically and physically, uh, the elephants will li- will live a much longer life, and uh, and the, it's kind of an exponential income. You know, it's a uh, it's the the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, you don't have to ride the elephants to ex- to see how amazing they are. In fact, seeing them in this organic, natural setting uh, is much more magical. Well, and the fact that these elephants have been treated poorly their whole life, but they still love humans and they will still come up to you and, and basically ask to be petted and want to be touched and want to be played with and are curious about you is just a really amazing fact about elephants yeah. that we get to discover on this trip. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. And, and, see, and, see, and I think seeing the volunteers that we bring with us, uh, we will bring, we'll bring uh, anywhere from six to eight volunteers. We try to keep the groups small uh, basically to fit into one van uh, <laughs> as well as uh, we want to give them as much individualized attention as possible. Uh, remember, like I said, people are first time travelers. Um, but yeah, being out in the jungle with, you know, just eight of us and seeing these animals up close. I mean, you see our volunteers eyes light up and it's a really magical experience. And the, the mahouts, which are the owners and trainers of these elephants, they see it as well and it positively reinforces itself. My first question is, having thought about the changes that have happened in Thailand on the onset of Mm COVID-19 and it making tourism and the tourist industry there pretty much uh, enter into a full stop, um, have you been following the changes that they have been making with regards to that and reintroducing or returning those elephants to their original jungles or villages? That's my first question. And my second question is more of, uh, I don't know, more of a spiritual question. And that has to do with 
what is it? Why do we, why do we want to be so up close to animals? <laughs> elephants, I understand. I mean, they're, right. that's, that's my thing too. Chimpanzees and elephants, even though I've never been up close to a chimpanzee uh, beyond the, the mesh, right? But yeah. what, what do you feel that that is? I'll give you a moment to think about both of those questions. Because I think that, that perhaps uh, if we look a little bit deeper into our response to wildlife, um, it will elicit some uh, empathy in our efforts to move away from captivity um, and enter into a more natural, coexistent relationship. So I'll leave it to you. Yeah, that was what was Jane, that's what was what Jane Goodall was was working on was really understanding uh, different species and and putting them on the board and and making them you know living beings that people need to stop testing on and exploiting and and I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got some theories why. Uh, so I mean, a lot of my a lot of my my personal career. Uh, actually takes place in a zoological setting, um, more mm -hmm. of a, more of an education, the education side of things, um, mm -hmm. using animals that uh, were either hatched in captivity or were injured in the wild and can't be released. I would I would let people hold a bird if 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 the, uh, the if the bird was trained and the bird felt comfortable and if the bird was willing, it was all it was always you know, letting the bird make the decision whether they wanted to be up close to somebody. Uh, but by giving somebody this up close experience, uh, that's when you see the beauty of it. I mean, you you look at a crow, you know, that's a pretty common bird you can see around town. Uh, you look at a crow from a distance, most people, they just look at these just like, it's like background noise. But when you put this bird up close to yourself and you see the see the intelligence in their eyes and you see their intricacy of their feathers. Uh, you see how just beautiful and perfectly evolved they are. Um, I think that is what makes it more, just so much more meaningful than, than from a distance. And uh, I think that's a really important role that zoos play. Uh, I think it's a really important, and when I say zoos, I mean ethical zoos, you know, ones that are AZA accredited or uh, ones that have the animal's best interest in mind. Um, as well as, you know, volunteer uh, programs and projects around the world, uh, getting people up close to animals. Um, it's meaningful in so many ways. When you uh, when you see even the most like common animal up close, it kind of just changes everything. You start to really get more curious. You start to see them as these uh, creatures that you coexist with in, in the planet. And I think that's, I think that's what it is. It's, it's curiosity and just straight up fascination. And one thing Aaron has taught me with his bird work is that even if he has three of the same species of bird, they'll all have different personalities. And I love when he comes home and tells me stories about mm. the different birds' personalities and, and what they did today and what they enjoyed and what they played with. And uh, learning that an animal has a personality is just fascinating. And then you obviously kind of want to make friends with it because it's, you know, it's like a person. Uh, looking at Thailand, how do we engage in a conversation to make this change? And I know that Lek um, is deeply involved 
um, with her government, uh, with parliament and the tribes. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what kind of conversations need, can be had to be obviously sensitive to the people, um, and the culture because using elephants in the tourist industry and in logging is part of a culture, their culture. It's also, mm-hmm. it's also a tad bit horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we have this conversation? I wonder if you have any ideas about that. Well, uh, you definitely have to tread lightly. Um, one thing that I've learned personally with, trying to spread awareness is uh, you don't want the person to get defensive because then they're not going to listen to anything you say. Um, And you also want to be very careful to not come across as, you know, the Westerner coming to change the culture, you know, uh, that can be offensive and disrespectful. Uh, So it's more kind of just a, I don't want to say lead by example, because we're not actually leading them, but it's kind of just showing them. Um, without having to to talk too much, without having to, you know, you can get all pedantic. You can you can cite these statistics. Uh, you can argue on Facebook with people. Uh, you know, there's uh, nobody wants to hear that what they're doing is wrong. Uh, no, and and when it comes to something as something as as you know, animal welfare, you know that is a that can be really controversial. And people will often anthropomorphize, which is, uh, I mean, I do it myself. It's, it's hard not to. Uh, and, but, but the problem with an- anthropomorphizing is that you are biased and you, can, uh, and you don't take the animal's actual feelings into account. You are taking what you think the animal is feeling. So um, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, no, but the elephant likes when you ride on them or whatnot, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so life, you know, and that that helps them want, be willing to give that over to her. Okay. Yeah. So as as, vol- as volunteers, um, I, this might sound counterintuitive, but uh, in with most projects a- abroad, when you're when you're a volunteer, you're paying to be there, and of course you're you're living at that place, so like it covers your room and board, but all the money goes towards that sort of endeavor. Uh, so, like, if, for example, going to Thailand, part of the money that we spend uh, and that our clients pay to be on this project will possibly end up, um, you know, in the hands of someone that originally had an elephant and was using it for uh, using it in ways that we disagree with. And uh, and now and now, you know, that elephant is saved. We got to see it in the wild and everybody wins. How do you suggest that we could introduce younger people to participate in conservation um, if they're not having the actual experience? Um, I worked at Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City um, where we would do these um, educational, a a bird show essentially, whether it was a formal bird show or, uh, or just taking birds to classrooms uh, doing education outreach, uh, as well as we would have like Boy Scout events, and uh, uh, as young as as young as kindergarten, uh, we called it the Little Chicks class, and that's mm-hmm. one of the ways that we would uh, I would put a toucan on the floor and let it hop around collecting berries, 
between the kids' legs, or I would let the kids hold some um, some pellets and the ducks would come eat out of their hand, or I would tell them to be quiet and let an owl fly over their head and be like, did you hear anything? Because owls fly silently. Um, there are a lot of nonprofits that do educational outreach with birds or animals. And if done right, that's, that's a really good way to get kids interested. And um, I was on the board of the Audubon Society, the Utah branch, and we used to take kids birding on birding trips and help them use the binoculars and, uh, you know, help them ID the birds. And they, they just respond so well to that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely definitely a big role on the parents to, uh, to be proactive and, you know, turn off the TV every day for a little bit. And like, I mean, my, my dad took me outside, but uh, not everybody has that luxury. But nevertheless, it, it definitely falls on the parents to give the kids some. And nowadays it's so different. I mean, when I was a kid, I was I was never inside. Uh, but uh, nowadays, I mean, uh, I see kids. I see kids that are like seven years old holding smartphones. Um, I think that the role of the parents is to, you know, turn off the TV, take, take the phone away for a little bit, get them outside, get them, get them to like, ha- have them, have them notice the birds, put a bird feeder up in your backyard, uh, have the bird, have the kids look out the window during dinner and be like, oh my gosh, a woodpecker is on the, a woodpecker is on the feeder, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, what sort of challenges have you been faced with and has it caused you to change the way you do business. I mean, the pandemic definitely changed everything in our in our day to day lives and with our future plans. Um, I will say that for 2020, we, um, if everything went as planned, <laughs> we would have already been to Costa Rica and back. Uh, we also would have uh, um, been to Nepal, uh, tracking red pandas in the wild and helping with that conservation effort. A really uh, rare animal, and then we'd be right now on our way to, to Thailand for this elephant project we've been talking about. Um, obviously, all of that was canceled. Uh, not only were uh, flights canceled, but like the projects themselves. Uh, and it is rough because a lot of these projects rely on tourism dollars, and um, a lot of like in Africa, like poachers that had put themselves on hold and started switching to wildlife tourism. Uh, without without the borders open for for you know Westerners and and people from around the world to come and uh, and and pay money to stimulate their economy and and enjoy wildlife, they've gone back to poaching. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the projects that we have volunteered for in the past or we're going to volunteer for in the future are doing these like massive fundraisers where they're just it's like they need to feed the animals, they need money and money. Uh, money usually comes from people paying to be there. So, uh, you know, fundraising for them alone uh, has been a lot of work. And I know that when I saw the, uh, when it all started to go down back in March, and I saw the images starting to come in from Thailand and the elephants there days and days and days without having had any food or anything, I just was numb for two days before I could figure out what I could do, you know, short of emptying my savings. Um, and I think that that is a response that most of us have if we have the finances to do so. But I'm wondering about other actions that people can consider in these situations. 
everybody needs money to survive and especially these uh you know uh, especially some of these projects that rely on volunteers uh sending supplies can be helpful um it's just spreading their message uh, uh, a lot of them have these like vast networks and uh, especially a social media presence and sharing their posts might not sound like much but it's a little bit all you can do um especially just for morale and you know spreading hope and you know we're all in this together and doing our best to spread hope to to not have them give up i have been thinking a lot about action and organizing and approaching the challenges in our world with an absolute conviction in the power of the individual the force that that one life can have so something i've been thinking about a lot about is since i'm stuck in la and most people will say i'm stuck wherever they're stuck um, and my work has primarily been focused um, abroad as well, is this idea that if we're to raise awareness, um, not just specifically to wildlife conservation, but conservation and in general and climate change, if we're trying to raise awareness in those areas, it feels as if we could get a percentage of people in each state that we're in, and then each country that we're in, each hemisphere that we're in. So that if one in 10 people, if I met one in 10 people, and they know what in particular is important in my state to be aware of, I guess my question to you is, um, what would you think is the most important things people in your state could be aware of regarding conservation? Well, it's funny you should ask because <laughs> um, in the absence of our volunteer travel, uh, you start to notice more directly around you and you realize you don't have to go to a different country or to a different continent mm -hmm. to see conservation issues that need to be taken care of. Um, we kind of threw ourselves uh, into the deep end right away with uh, with local conservation. Um, a bit of an activism role more so than than a uh, than a outreach role. Um, so in in Colorado, uh, our uh, our local government has been a I guess for lack of a better word, uh, capitulating to um, you know the the welfare ranchers and uh, and the and the and the farmers uh, like the hay farmers of, of the rural areas around here, uh, and uh, they recently voted eight to one to uh, kill thirty thousand prairie dogs uh, on a ten thousand acre uh, plot of land uh, where and we know this plot of land very well. It's near it's near our house, and we go bird watching there all the time. I've personally documented at least 30 species of bird. Uh, we see all sorts of, of uh, apex predators like eagles and hawks and uh, coyotes. Um, and they rely on these prairie dogs, at, which are a keystone species. And uh, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions around prairie dogs, whether people think that they spread the plague, which uh, is not fully true. That's a pretty big one, the prairie dog situation locally in Colorado. Uh, and throughout the West, honestly, prairie dogs are down to only 1% of their uh, historic populations. And they're not on the endangered species list because special interest groups, groups don't want them to be. 
Uh, and there's so much misinformation around them. People think of them as pests, but if you remove prairie dogs, you're removing all the hawks and the eagles and the coyotes and the bobcats and uh, all of the animals that depends on them. So that's a big one. And then on the other end, obviously hunters and ranchers are not don't want that. But it's really important to connect the northern population of wolves to the southern population. And the state of Colorado kind of is like a huge fragmented uh, barrier for them. Uh, and I mean, as you know, I mean, wildlife needs to be able to breed and uh, have genetic diversity. Uh, so introducing the wolves is actually a really important conservation move, but it's so controversial and people are scared of them. I mean, it's, 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 I would say it's centuries of misinformation and not just in the U S but almost anywhere in the world, the, the go-to human, uh, like response to wildlife that's a pest or or challenging is to kill them and wipe them out. And mm-hmm. we're trying to come up with other ways, you know. Yeah. Which is why I'm focusing on this idea that we look at our own states in particular, where we're standing at right now, and how many people can we educate to what's happening right now? And how do we completely rearrange our relationship with the natural world because the relationship we have right now is the one that's killing us. Yeah. Can you share with us what has been one of the uh, most emotional of journeys for you? Um, I guess, gosh, they're all so good. <laughs> I guess, uh, So the first time I went to Africa was last November and I had been waiting pretty much my whole life to go to Africa. I've been dreaming of it since I was five years old, watching those nature programs on PBS about the Serengeti and big cats and like amazing endangered wildlife. I, you know, I've been studying African history. It's such an interesting colorful turbulent place with its history child soldiers refugees it's there's just really no other place like it and uh it's it's expensive and it's a scary place and i just never made it there until i could lead a trip there with my company and i finally did and it was every bit as amazing as i'd imagined so i'd say that was that one's definitely the most impactful project in my mind and that's the place i'd really like to go back to the most starting next year to take people to work with uh, cheetahs, raising and releasing cheetahs for conservation there in South Africa. You're inside, you're isolated. Let's let's get you on this trip and have, have you have something to look forward to next year. And uh, you know, we'll be ready. <laughs> I'm looking at the image that you sent me, uh, both of you, and I want to talk about your image, Jenny. First, uh, sure. it looks like you're in Namibia. Yep, and those yep. two beautiful creatures. I will uh, put the image up when the podcast goes up so people will be able to see what we're talking about. What is going on in that image? <laughs> you mean, why am I cuddling two baboons? <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of baboons. A lot of baboons are orphaned for various reasons. And uh, one of the roles of us volunteers of that project is to socialize the young baboons. Once they're older, they're, they actually go into a rewilding process that's a totally separate area so we just work with the young ones who are pretty safe and really fun and really curious uh, about their human friends 
And Mm -hmm. so we get to basically walk them into the wild where they kind of learn to be wild baboons. And we sit with them and they, you know, get to choose whether to hang out with us or do their own thing. And a lot of, I mean, these two chose to take a nap in my lap and for like (laughs) two hours where I was stuck there, but it was an amazing way to be stuck and I was happy about it. And that was like a super, super exciting day being part of a, a baboon troop. And that's literally how they look at you as part of member of their troop. Okay. So I'm looking at your picture, Aaron. And that picture is a golden eagle. Uh, her name is Nijoni, uh, which means beautiful in Navajo. Um, that bird was one of my best friends uh, for a while uh, in my career. Uh, she had been uh, injured in the wild. She actually was found on the side of the road with a shotgun blast through her wing. Uh, she lost her ability, ability to fly. Uh, and uh, um, after um, being in rehabilitation, she was deemed un- non-releasable, and she ended up at the aviary. Uh, uh, after she passed away, I had uh, so many people sending me messages like, hey, I met Najoni 20 years ago. Uh, or, hey, I, w- I worked with her wow. 30 years ago. Here's a black and white picture of me with her. Or, oh, um, she's in my wedding photo. Or my my son, uh, when he got his uh, eagle, when he became an eagle scout, uh, you brought him to our church. And, you brought her, sorry, to the church and uh, and met my son. And that my, to this day, my kid is now in his 20s and still talks about it. Um, it was This was a really meaningful bird. This was a very special bird. And that's... That photo is one of my favorite photos of myself because of the memories that I have with, with her specifically. Um, I would like to leave this on a note by talking just a little bit about the trips you can plan. But uh, we're really hoping that travel is just safe by next summer. And um, I actually have quite a few trips that got rescheduled. So now are on the schedule. And next fall is Africa. So it's Namibia again. And then the the South Africa cheetah project, um, who's really doing a lot to increase wild cheetah numbers there. And the year after that, we're doing Nepal and Thailand again, uh, that were rescheduled from this year. So the trekking through the Himalayas to find red pandas in the wild to photograph and to observe. And the funds go to help the local communities protecting them and the nonprofits protecting red pandas. Uh, It sounds pretty amazing. That does sound amazing. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me. I appreciate you during this time, you know, looking for things to make the world a better place to conserve the beautiful world that we have before us for our children. This is my first podcast. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, one of the favorite quotes that we both tell each other all the time when things seem gloomy uh, is a, this great Jane Goodall quote, which I think is a great way to end this podcast. Uh, and as Jane Goodall says, Um, I like to envision the whole world as a jigsaw puzzle. If you look at the whole picture, it is very overwhelming and terrifying. But if you work on your little part of the the jigsaw and know that people all over the world are working on theirs, that's what will give you hope. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us. We have only a couple of requests. 
That is to hit us up on the website, emergingworldproject.org, where you can dig a little bit deeper into our conversations. And remember, friends, be the light in the room.